Welcome back to Track and Field Black History. My name is Anderson, and we have a treat for you today as we had the pleasure of speaking with Judy Brown-Clark. Now, Judy Brown-Clark is a 1984 Olympic silver medalist in the 400-meter hurdles, and at the time, the women's event was still in its infancy on the international stage, so she's one of the pioneers in the 400-meter hurdles. She also won the Pan American Games on two occasions in 1983 and 1987, but even more than an athlete, Judy Brown-Clark has been an integral part of politics, education, science, technology, and has really been focused on leadership and equity and giving back to the younger generation in various different ways since her career on the track. We, of course, dive into all of that in our conversation. We also talk about her background growing up in the Midwest, the effects of Title IX on her career, and how it's affected other women now, the intersection of politics and sports, and we really dive into the importance of travel and the global experiences that Brown Clark has had from being in Venezuela and experiencing a country of black and brown people for the first time to even crossing Checkpoint Charlie at the Berlin Wall in the 1980s. So be sure to tune in for the conversation, subscribe to the podcast if you're not already, leave a review, share with others, and let's jump in with Judy Brown Clark. Welcome back, everyone, to Track and Field Black History. My name is Anderson, and we have the pleasure of speaking with one of the legends in the sport of track and field, one of the greatest athletes to ever touch the track, um, and one of the greatest people in you know in the thing that in the things that she's been doing after um, the track and after a track career. Um, but just a little introduction on some of her accolades: she is a two-time. Pan American Games champion in the 400 meter hurdles um, and still the only woman to ever defend their title in the 400 meter hurdles at the Pan Am Games. Um, of course, 1984 Olympic silver medalist in the 400 meter hurdles, uh, multiple time US champion, um, actually former world record holder, um, and then also NCAA champion, multiple time All-American, multiple time Big Ten champion while at Michigan State. Um, and now she's been an integral part um, of politics, education, and advocacy for, for many, many years. Um, there's just so many accolades and achievements to name, but we have the pleasure of speaking with Judy Brown-Clark. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, and thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. So um, tons of things I want to dive into, but we can kind of start back a little bit. And if you can talk about your what it was like growing up in the Midwest um, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're from Wisconsin, but moved to yeah. Indiana and then later Michigan. That is exactly right. So it's interesting as I think back um, and I, I, I look at my childhood um, you know, back in the 60s, it's like, you know, we were right in the middle of civil, civil rights and, you know, the assassination of Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy. There was a lot of social unrest and there were times, you know, most times you could not walk down the street by yourself and you were definitely afraid of law enforcement and quite frankly, authority. Um, I'm two generations from enslaved. And so my grandparents, you know, were like first generation free. And so I think about what my grand, how my grandparents talked and how my parents talked, um, still kind of having that, that, that enslaved mentality of, you know, what it means to be safe and mistrust and so on. So it's just interesting um, thinking back, you know, I think sport was an equalizer. Um, we moved from um, Wisconsin to Indiana. My father was transferred and we moved to Kokomo, Indiana. And it was a predominantly white rural um, 
and, and frankly, at that time was a racist city. And, um, you know, they had Klan marches. That's where Ryan White was. Um, if you recall, he was denied um, attendance in, in school. So it was a very intolerant time. We have Klan marches, like I said, once a, um, once a month. And the one thing that helped as we were bused, one thing that helped me in, in that time was because I had athletic talent. And it allowed, as long as I had the jersey on, I was considered acceptable. Now, once I turned that jersey off or took it off, you know, I was like anybody else and, you know, was the N-word and whatever. So it's interesting how sport really helped me kind of navigate my childhood. And um, so it was a blessing. Nice. And during that time, like you, you're mentioning, you know, coming off the, the 50s where, you know, of course, you had Brown v. Board of Education that kind of set yeah. off a wave with, um, you know, civil rights legislation, but also, you know, a lot of, you know, trife, um, you know, for Black Americans. But can you speak about some people that you looked up to um, in terms of role models that, you know, might have helped you to be able to navigate through that time? So it's really interesting. I have a very different perspective on segregation mm -hmm. because during segregation, while it felt like there was oppressive and there was kind of these areas where people of color could reside, there was also incredible economy. There was the village of taking care of each other. You know, our schools had black teachers. We had black doctors, black bankers and the corner store, the person that fixed your car, um, so we had a lot more role models because there was an, this dense, this, this really dense population of, of taking care of each other because there wasn't safety beyond the neighborhood. And so once we desegregated, it really was, um, it was kind of sad because again, um, with a lot of the redlining and, 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 you know, just things of, of gentrification and so on, a, a lot of things that really created the, the, the community, those stores started to, you know, close, rent was raised and, and certain things that happened through municipalities to look at prime spaces as, as communities move further into what would be considered black area. So I have a very different perspective when, when I, I think of segregation and really um, black wealth. Mm. That's interesting. That's very interesting. And I, I know that, you know, um, looking back at that time, um, you know, coming off the you know the civil rights era, it did seem like there was kind of this um, rise of black wealth and black excellence, or at least like, yeah. it seemed like yeah. there was some opportunities. Um, but since then, it's kind of been up and down. And um, especially for myself, someone who's, you know, a little bit younger, looking at it, it seems like there hasn't been as much progress. Um, but can you talk a little bit about um, some of the changes um, that you've seen since the 60s and 70s, as we've made progress over the decades into now, in terms yeah. of, you know, Black opportunities and things like that? So, you know, early on, it was affirmative action and it was kind of a quota system. And so there was intentionality to diversify to a point mm. um, and have black and brown faces within points of leadership. Um, 
areas where there hadn't been representation, but you know, at that point in time, it was really a quota. So mm-hmm. if the door opened and, and, and there was representation, the door closed after that person. And there's nothing worse than being the only one. Now, many people think it's like, you know, you get in and you close the door. You are most vulnerable when it's your single voice that is trying to be equitable, fair, and looking at, you know, things around justice and parity. So um, for the shoulders that we stand on, those individuals that were the first, and most people that were the first were, um, have the, the most difficult time and many times it's interesting we were watching my husband and I were watching the history channel we were looking at the buffalo soldiers and they were talking about the uh, within the infantry's you know the black leadership and how um, those that rose a little too high were um, disgraced not just demoted but disgraced and, you know, but fortunately the resiliency and the tenacity, there, there was a person behind, you know, to be that one person, then there was two. And finally we're at the point now where we have more representation, but being, you know, early on in the sixties and seventies and eighties and even nineties, it was tough. It was very tough. Very and to nice. me, when people say you're the first, that means nothing to me because I cannot tell you the number of times I've been the first one in the room. I'm sometimes the last one in the room. Mm-hmm. And um, so for me, it's just, you know, that's where sports is kind of a um, kind of a, a parody of life is, you know, oh, how many doors can I open and, and prop open? How many, you know, perspectives can I change when, when we think about um, those old uh, perspectives of, of merit? and intelligence and, and, and resiliency and, and, and contribution. It's, you know, it's kind of my, I have the, the same appetite and, and competitiveness to show that I have the same fast twitch muscles from the neck up as I do from the neck down. I, I love that. That is powerful. That is powerful. And kind of diving there, there's a lot I want to dive back into um, yeah. regarding that. But um, speaking of your sports career and your track free, uh, career, how did you initially get into track and field? So it's really funny. Um, my family was not sports oriented at all. They were now my brother is 6'10", my other brother's 6'8", I'm close to six feet, my father's 6'2", my mom's 5'9", and, and my, my sister is, is shorter, she's 5'2", but you know, we're all athletic. But that was such a, um, it was a stereotype. And it was also one of those things that, you know, um, you get used. So as we think about the athletes in the, you know, the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, you were used for your athletic talent, but as far as any other contributions, um, you were pretty much marginalized. Mm -hmm. And so it was very, very important for my family that we had education and we we were all, I mean, when I grew up, it was never um, a thought of what I go to college. I knew I was going to college. I didn't know where, I didn't know how, you know, we were poor and there was four, four children. I was the youngest. I didn't, so I didn't know how, which was kind of where sports came in. It's like, if, if I can get a scholarship then I can offset the cost, but, you know, two generations, my grandparents, you know, didn't graduate from, 
high school. <laughs> you know, so if you think about one or two generations, it's so easy for me to know generational trajectory, how you redirect the trajectory of a generation and really, you know, with one person in a family can be the difference between, you know, generational poverty and, and literacy issues to being at full capacity. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that is, that's some real powerful. It's really, really strong. And I, I think it really resonates with a lot of people, um, not only back, you know, of course, when you were growing up, but then even today, there's sure. a lot of parallels. Um, and so kind of diving into it, sticking in that time period, um, you know, we're, we're coming up on 50 years of Title IX um, from 1972. Um, can you talk about what impact Title IX might have had on your upbringing, both in sports? I, I, you know, I know a lot of people know Title IX for sports, but it's also, it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's very broad for education, for a lot of different things. Um, can you talk about the impact that Title IX had for you? Yeah, so, you know, early on in my, in, you know, as in my childhood, Title IX allowed there to be girls sports. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I was on the boys team when I was really young and then being on the girls team, that was like my first introduction to, to Title IX. And then when I started college, my first coach, her name was Nell Jackson. And she was a real strong advocate for Title IX, like one of the first Black athletic direct, female athletic, mm -hmm. uh, athletic director and female athletic directors in a predominantly white institution, definitely in the, in the Big Ten. And I didn't understand, I didn't understand her passion, I didn't understand her anger. Um, I, I knew she wasn't being, I didn't know at the time she wasn't being treated right, you know, and was fighting very hard for equity um, at all levels, you know, through sport. And um, so it's interesting as I got older later on, retrospectively looking back, um, you know, at the time I was like, man, she is really intense. <laughs> and now I'm her. So when I, when I look back, I realize how much she had an impact on me. And it just became so important to me to, you know, both from, you know, having access as a female, access as people of color, access for first generation and so on, and making sure that there was, um, you know, parallel systems and pathways to education and having, you know, fairness and, and pay and, and merit-based kind of, uh, of matriculation through the, the, you know, through both the higher education academy as well as other things. And, and fairness just even within healthcare for, you know, women's health and so on. Um, so it was like such, you know, I was standing deep in it well before I knew where I was standing around all these incredible women that I didn't understand their passion. I didn't understand their agenda. But what I did see is their model, what it meant for them to have the resilience and the tenacity and their ability to be um, you know, steadfast and making a difference. And I think that is, you, you know, I, I am them now. I, I don't play, <laughs> right? You really don't. <laughs> oh, I, I love that. I love that. And that's amazing. I actually didn't know that Nell Jackson, I mean, she's like a legend in oh many my ways. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, I, um, and I remember like the first time I really understood 
understood. It was like a Black History Month. Well, back, I was probably in my early 30s. It was the Black History Month. And I was coaching at the time. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about her. And I was reconciling what I experienced to what I was now learning. And it, it, it filled in the blanks. And I was like, wow. Yeah. And I just, we called her Dr. Jackson. We didn't even call her Coach Jackson. She was Dr. Jackson. And I just remember, um, I just remember just thinking, it's like, okay, I'm going to pick up the baton where you dropped off and whatever you were trying to accomplish. You know, I, you know, I didn't understand it then. Um, I surely, I surely understand it now. And I'll make sure everyone behind me understands so that when I hand the baton back, that it will go into a hand and, and, and move forward. Nice. That's beautiful. And then kind of sticking with the Title IX and, of course, opportunities for women. So while you were at Michigan State, um, you started while the AIAW, um, you know, was in place for women as opposed to NCAA. And then there was that transition um, in the early 80s. Can you talk about what that experience was like competing in college, uh, running track, while there was a shift change and kind of more opportunities potentially opened up for women? Yeah, and I think that that was part of Dr. Jackson coming out in me is, you know, she really felt, she's like, okay, this is really nice that there's kind of a nationals for women, but if there's parity in sport, then, and, you know, the men's and women's track team, we we practice together many times, mm-hmm. we travel together, we competed together. So it, it felt bad to see that the men would go to a championship, we go to another. And it's like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't understand this. And, and so a lot of her tone, her demeanor, her advocacy that I didn't really understand at the time, I understood her real push for parity and, and having that, that sense of, you know, that, you know, now men's and women's championships are at the same time and um and and it you know not not every men's and women's you know um is at the same time but many are and so it made such a a a difference in in my perspective of having the transition from the AIAW into the NCAA it's like she had prepared us I was ready for, I was ready for the NCAA. So I was like, okay, so when are we going to, so I heard what you said. So when is this going to happen? And she's like, I, I think it's going to happen this time. And I was like, good, because I don't know, we have this women's championship over here when, you know what, everything else we're doing together. We were even doing like the big 10 championship. Actually, I think it was separate at that time. And so it was just like, I don't understand this when our meets during the season are together, mm-hmm. but our championships were separate, which made no sense. Yeah. And um, so for me, I just kind of picked up her demeanor and I was like, okay, so by AIAW, <laughs> I'm ready for the end. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Nice. I was ready. There you go. I love that. And and as you ran through college, you had a tremendous amount of success. Um, and of course, leading to, you know, Pan American Games eventually in Olympics. But did you imagine that track could be something that would lead to something bigger, especially coming from where you came from? No. So here is, so my father was, he made the world big for us. 
And even though we were in, you know, Milwaukee, sitting in, you know, Central City in the middle of, you know, when the streetlights came on, you came home because that was safety. And then going to Kokomo, Indiana, where, you know, safety was, you know, grounded in racism. You know, we watched like, you know, the, the wild world of sports. And then we watched um, Animal Kingdom and, we watched all these different shows that would be all over the world, particularly around Animal Kingdom. You, you would go to Africa and Asia and India and all these different places. You would see different animals and culture and food and clothing. And I, I just remembered, you know, if I ever had an opportunity, I was going to travel. I was really going to travel. Now, I was always faster than most, but I was like, you know, I, I really would love the opportunity to travel. And so then as I started running better, it's like, you know, oh my gosh, they have track at different places in the world. So if I, if I run fast enough, I can travel. And so really that's how it started off is, is I want, you know, I'd never been on a plane. I had never been out of the country. I'd never been, you know, other than the States that I lived in. And I mean, other than my, my father's family lived in Maryland. So we'd go to Maryland all the time. But other than that, it's like, I'd never, you know, my world was fairly small. But I had a, a very healthy appetite that the world was bigger than what I knew, and I wanted to experience it. So, and running, it was like how many countries? I don't know how long I'll run, but how many countries can I visit before this ends? Before I'm hurt, before I get cut, or whatever happens, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best to travel and consume as many cultures. And literally, when I travel. You know, we'd come in and pretty much during the circuits, you were pretty, every other day you were traveling. So I would come in, I throw myself in the stuff in the room and I'd go on the concierge and I'd say, where's the market? Where's the aquarium, the museum or the, um, or the zoo? That's how I would figure out the, the culture. So I saw different animals and plants and the market's the best because it has the different foods and the smell of spices and, and the clothing, what toys they played with and, you know, um, just the colors and the, the language. Uh, so I just, I mean, I was in places in, in retrospect, I should never have been <laughs> by myself, but I just, I ate it up. Did you have that idea? Because like you were saying, you know, you're, you had like a, your, your world was kind of small. You didn't have these yeah. different experiences. Did you have an idea of what the world out there was before you got yeah. to these new places? Yeah, because I, you know, I would, you know, back then it's like, you know, we couldn't Google it. We didn't have technology. So listen, I looked at the Atlas and I would look it up. You know, my parents, my mom was a teacher. My father was an engineer. And um. I remember, you know, you looked it up, you went to the library, you went Dewey Decimal, you look it up and, you, and you'd open it up and you're like, you know, what, what do they eat? What language do they talk? You know, what spices do they have? You know, how should you dress? What, what, what is, what's the culture? What should I expect? And was it, what should I wear? What don't I wear? Um, Cause you know, we went in places where, you know there may be a Muslim country and you don't expose yourself or there's, there's countries where, um, women are by themselves, you know, so there's, I would always learn the culture and, and make sure that I was being very um, um, respectful. And I would try to learn, you know, just enough to say, you know, hello, how are you? 
where's the bathroom, <laughs> you know, where's the restaurant, you know, what's the name of my hotel, you know, so those kind of things. So it's, we didn't have cell phones. So if you're out somewhere, that's that. If the train stopped, you know, there may be, you may be in a place where the streets have 27 letters in there and you're trying to figure out how to get three miles from where you are. No one speaks your language because you're, you know, you're like in Finland and, and they've never seen blacks other in a lot of places. They had never seen black females. They had seen black males because they had seen soldiers, but they hadn't seen black females. So it was really interesting because we were really interesting to them. Wow. because they had never seen black females. That's amazing. And I, I could imagine sometimes that it could be a, cult, a huge culture shock, um, you know, going from the Midwest, going from where you're, you know, you have your comfortable environment to a completely different place where people are looking at you like, like, I can't even conceptualize who this is standing in front of me, right? So I loved it. I, oh my, I loved, I just, <laughs> I was thriving on it. And like the different language, like going to a place and like the language is different. The culture is different. Protocols are different. Uh, religion is different. The clothes are different. The food is different. And so for me, it was, I always had this insatiable desire to be um, full you know, of, of, you know, it's like, how do I take advantage of these opportunities? Because number one, I'm fully aware most don't have this. Mm -hmm. I'm also fully aware of the privilege that I'm standing in right now. And, and it's my absolute responsibilities to, at full capacity, take advantage of it. So, you know, like most of us, I was taught, you know, you don't say you don't like it if you don't taste it. So I have eaten everything, including cat. So, <laughs> you taste it. And I do not like monkey brains, but you taste it and you go places. Like I was like close to the border of North and South Korea during, you know, when there was a lot of conflict, you know, I've always, I've almost been bombed like three times. I was, you know, I was a place in Seoul, Korea where they bombed this technology store and I had just left. I was like in a market in Paris and they had a, you know, down they had a, a bombing there and I used to get bagels, not bagels, but, you know, French pastries there. And, you know, I've been on planes that have almost crashed and, but, you know, I just want to feel like, you know, at the end of my life, can I defend that I took advantage of everything that God, the creator put in front of me? It's like, oh, I did. I did. And my only regret is like things I can't do again, but everything you put in front of me is zero regrets full embracing and that's just me nice and yeah I really love what you're saying just highlighting that you know you should take advantage of these experiences even yeah. even though there are some like kind of on the edge experiences you still were like back at it because you know this was this is only one time right you can't go back and replace them so um like I crossed from checkpoint Charlie which is between east and west Germany during the, the Soviet bloc and so literally, you know, West Germany was, was Western. East Germany couldn't have been more oppressive than you could possibly think. So we had a meet in East Germany. And so we went through Checkpoint Charlie, which was like literally a fence, a wall, barbed wire, a little shack in the middle. Wow. 
And I remember there was about six of us. And so you literally get off a bus and you walk like half a damn mile. It's way out there. So you walk to, I mean, so there's no sneaking up on it because there's nothing near it. You can't sneak up on it. And so, you know, we, we had, we, we went, um, we went there and I remember walking into Checkpoint Charlie and it was a dread. It was the most oppressive, you know, um, I, I can't describe it as it relates to a place where you have absolutely zero rights. Wow. If they, you know, if we were to go there and somebody were to say something or do something, you could be in prison for like up to six months without a trial, without, I mean, literally. Wow. And it was like the most, um, and I'm thinking, so this is what it's like to live in a full communist country with zero rights, no value of life. Wow. And, and, and it was just amazing. And then literally we crossed over. I mean, we coming out of East Germany, there was like zero color. Everything was like brick. And, and then we crossed over into West Germany and, and the buildings are colored bright and there's flowers and whatever. And I was like, that was like stepping back in time. Wow. I mean, literally it was like stepping back in Soviet block time. It was, it was like the most, only thing I can think of was like walking through a museum and wow. just kind of experientially walking through it. But it was like such a time machine. And it was, those are the kind of things that they're not even around, you know, the Berlin Wall, you know, all the things that they're not there anymore. So if, if you don't take an opportunity to really immerse yourself in, 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 in the truth of now, you don't know if that opportunity is going to present itself again. Yeah, very powerful. So diving back um, to the U.S. a little bit now. So, of course, in, well, in 1983, you made the Pan American Games. You, uh, of course, won the gold medal. Um, can you talk to me about that experience? I, I don't know if that, because I know that was in Venezuela, but was that your first international trip or um, how do you travel before then? So my first international trip was going to Canada. So we had World University Games the, the year before. Not that was my first international experience going to Canada. Living in Michigan, that's nothing. Or, or actually, I was in Wisconsin. So it's like walking over the border, but that was my first international. So going down to Venezuela, we, we, we went down to, um, and it was interesting um, because it was like the first time I'd been to a country of brown people. And I was like, this is, wow, I don't stick out. As a matter of fact, everyone would speak to me in Portuguese because they thought I was Brazilian. And it was just so, or, or, or Venezuelan rather. And so it was just amazing. The first time you go to a country where you're the majority. Wow. It was, it was so really, it was like my first time, like, this is how white people feel. <laughs> I was like, wow. This is how white people feel. I am in a country of brown. The leadership is brown. I mean, they're different colors of brown, but literally there's like the rainbow of brown you know, all the way from white to chocolate, different, you know, different. It was just like, wow, I found my people. This is crazy. Yeah. 
I remember that vividly. That is so beautiful. Yeah. And that's like an experience that so few people, you know, have the opportunity to experience, right? Thinking of, even thinking of some of the things you were saying before, where so many people, even today, only get to see their community. Like, you know, I I live in New York City and uh, I used to be a teacher. And many of my students who lived in Harlem said that they've never been downtown, like a train, train way, train right away. So even the experience of going to a new country and seeing people a complete country that looks like you, I could only imagine that like first experience, that first feeling, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, that is powerful. Um, and then of course, the following year, um, you made it to the Olympic games, you eventually won a silver medal. Um, and this is very early in the, at least internationally with the 400 meter yeah. hurdle, right? Um, can you talk to me about that experience and what that feeling was like to, you know, win a silver medal kind of on the highest stage of track and field? Yeah, so for for me, of course, I wanted to win the gold, so I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> but um, it was we, you know, I, I I knew I was like, okay, so that keeps me in the game because mm-hmm. now that I'm an Olympian and I and I'm a medalist, you know, I, I it it gave me a little bit of that bump up of cred. So not only am I running the times that advance me, but it allows me as an Olympian and a medalist to be at all the meets that, that have me going all over the world. And one of the beauties that I loved about track is that it's a low cost, no cost sport. Mm. Literally in track, it's a, it's a race to that tree. It's like um, soccer, yep. you know, world, you know, football is in. And so the beauty of that is that the low cost um, sport means it's in second and, and third world countries, which means I could go to places that, you know, were really, really, you know, on my bucket list Mm -hmm. versus like, you know, sometime when you have, you know, really um, privileged sports, they're only in certain countries that people have the capacity to compete, but like low cost sports or no cost sports, you know, track that, which is why uh, football, soccer, football and track are, you know, world, um, you know, world sports because they're no cost sports. You can kick, you can kick a coconut, you can kick a bag, you can kick a, a, a can, you can kick anything. So your ability to advance whatever the thing you're using, you can organize immediately. And so that's what I love about track and soccer is like, they're the most diverse, you know, and now baseball has, has you know, moved into that. But, you know, baseball is, is pretty much, a North and South American in, in, you know, Jap, you know, in, in kind of in that, that the, um, J- you know, Japan and China, um, you know, other places it's cricket and it's, you know, things like rugby and things like that, but still it requires a level of cost. So, you know, nothing is like soccer in track. You'll always have the most diverse participation globally. And I love that. Yeah, that is so powerful. I, I love I love seeing the the access to it, right? It's it's it provides that access to so many who may not have the opportunity to yeah. um, get into sports in general. Kind of bouncing off that though, and I guess you know it's thinking about it in the US, football, you know, American football, basketball, um, those are like the glamour sports, whereas um the more accessible sports, actually even soccer is 
is not. And of course, track yeah. and field is, is not. Um, just curious on your thoughts on, on that in terms of, you know, why isn't track and field one of the more popular sports despite the participation? It's, it's interesting because soccer and, and track are gateway sports. Yeah. If you talk to people in basketball or, mm. you know, baseball, hockey, and, and, and basketball, they'll all tell you they started off in soccer, you know, which is typically kind of that kindergarten through yeah. fifth grade. So they, they, their foundation of sport really will start off in, in, in track. And, and you can tell us, like, I can tell, like when somebody does a layup, I can tell they did track. I'm like, okay, hurdler, high jumper, you can tell. And so, yeah, football, there's a certain way. And it's like, yeah, hurdler, look at what, yeah, yeah, very coordinated. So they're, they're very intertwined. Um, and so most people that have, that are in sports, they'll tell you that their their initial gateway would be something like uh, they started off maybe in t-ball, but it, it's like it's like going to be soccer, you know, soccer, t-ball, or track, and then they may have moved into like pop Warner football and things like that. Um, but those are about the time that you start having to pay for pay to play. So now you're having to pay for, you know, um, registration fees and, and for your equipment and to participate at certain, um, you know, unless you happen to be a sponsor, but most sponsor teams are teams that are pulling from those kind of feeder teams. Yeah. So your first participation is, is fully coming out of your pocket. Mm. Very true, very true. And kind of connecting with that, um, thinking of, you know, football, basketball, I guess less so in, in track, um, just because of the nature of it. But there's a lot of athletes who, you know, they may move from, uh, from high school to college, um, but then even college to professional, and they may not be ready for that transition. Um, and so I'm curious if you received any support in terms of education, um, ways to navigate the world, and even just outside of being a, uh, transitioning from college to, you know, professional and kind of the big stage, but just being an adult, um, coming out of college, did you receive education and support and kind of knowledge in that? Not, not during my era, mm. but there are now. So now they have, if you're sponsored, they may yeah. have some relationship with, with uh, a, a local uh, college, whether it's a community college or a four-year institution. Um, there's, been you know a lot of research now on you know the qualities of of someone that has been in sport tenacity resilience team um, you know being a team player setting goals and and so on so there's been a real push to hire former athletes and so if if you've got that background then employers are looking for you and of course once you're in the organization they'll do their own internal corporate training the other piece of that is. Um, you know, now you can stay longer in the sport. Like when I competed, we were working. So, you know, even if you had sponsorship, it was, it, it was enough to kind of offset poverty, <laughs> but it wasn't, you know, you still had to work. You couldn't, you know, whereas now I look at some of the races that they won and I'm looking, I'm like, what did you, <laughs> wait, there's a purse. <laughs> wait, what did you win? Huh? What? So it's, it's, you know, now it, it really is professional sports and, you know, so a lot of, of, in my era, you know, it was, it was, 
you know, you started to see, there was just a few people that, you know, really ran in their, their, you know, upper twenties and maybe even made it to the thirties, but they were typically male and, um, and, and in an icon, cause you could, you could be an icon female and not be supported, you know, or, or, or you were white. And, um, so when you, when you look at some of the, the earlier, um, particularly female of color, and you know who, who ran, you know, had extraordinary careers. Um, never received the level of support. There was no branding around them, and the and even you know even the things that they accomplished were never you know considered marketing skills and tools. And so you know you ran as long as you could, and, and pretty much as soon as you had a family. Um, or you, you just, you know, whether you got injured or you just financially couldn't continue, um, that happened a lot earlier. So a lot of my error, you'll see that people stop running probably around 26, 27, if you made it that long. Wow. Which is very young. Like you're saying now, I mean, athletes compete into their thirties and forties. Yeah. And you're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) 10 years into a job. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then even then, you know, you're 30 and 40, you retire from track or sports and you're still very, very young. Um, but so some of the, some of the things that you're talking about, I think are super essential where, you know, getting opportunities after your, um, you know, you compete, right. Whether that be yeah. in sports or whether that be in different, um, assets and spaces as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was, there wasn't a continuation plan. There wasn't like, you get picked up, like now you'll see a lot of the former athletes now moving into broadcasting and things like there was none of that, none of that. There were very few people of color, um, in, 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 in sports broadcasting, like you, you'd say, you know, you'd see certain people that, you know, always were there, but there was never any kind of, you know, rotating, you know, athletes in to give their perspective and so on. So that has happened, you know, later on in, in, in the game, but during our time, it's like, it really didn't matter how articulate you were, how charismatic you were, it wasn't going to happen. Got it. Mm-mm. And so um, kind of connecting to your post-track career, um, I, I've learned you've had a very, very diverse and <laughs> yes, very, very diverse career. Um, you know, you've worked in, you know, for various um, advisory committee, uh, committees, you've worked in the STEM field in various capacities, um, of course, in various initiatives on equity and you do, you do so much, <laughs> you do so much, which is amazing. Um, I'm curious on, First, just initially, what attracted you um, to like the STEM field and some of those um, things that you've worked in in some capacities? Well, I think, you know, I always, I think it was both my mother and my father. My, my mother was a teacher and my father was an engineer. And it was always this incredible interest in, in science and, and how things worked and um, nature conservation you know I even you know as as I think really early on it's like I even had like a very healthy understanding of the universe and we had a telescope and we would you know back then it wasn't as 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 polluted so you know we would go out with our telescope 
And we would, you know, learn the planets and think about, you know, do you know how many, do you know what a light year is? Do you know how far away? So if you were to go to that star right there, do you know when you would get there? And it's like, you'd die before you got there. So, um, and I remember my father was like, you would die. And if you had kids on your way there, they would die because by the time you got there to be like your great, 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 they don't even know why they were going because too many generations had died before they got there. But it was just like always this, this incredible sense of, of um, a spatial sense. I don't know how to say it, but a real spatial sense and, and, and respect for the planets and the galaxy and understanding more and, 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 um, you know, doing experience, you know, experiments with my mom, you know, being a teacher and under, do you know that chemical reaction? Do you know why? So I was like, always like a very curious kid. And, and, and I just kind of had, you know, half my mom's brain, half my dad's brain. So half analytical, half creative. And so for me, what I loved is, you know, making meaning and making sense out of things or strategically navigating things that are um, kind of wicked, misunderstood things that are confusing or chaos. Uh, I think, you know, being, you know, a person of color in the 60s, your life is chaos. So your ability to navigate it from a scientific perspective is like, I don't know, normal. And so the resiliency and understanding and capacity and what if, and, um, and just, you know, my parents were very, it was very important that I knew black history. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was always thinking, it's like, how in the world does someone that creates something that's, um, and, and typically, you know, creation was mother of invention because you're like, okay, this is, this is hard. So mm -hmm. I, it seems like there's a better way. And so, you know, you create using um, your own um, imagination, but, but the incredible innovation. And so I, I think about the things that were happening, you know, we think about our, the days of slaves, but if we really know our history, yeah. let's go back thousands of years and you're like, why do I see pyramids in Africa that look a lot like the pyramids, <laughs> you know, in Egypt, which are newer. Mm -hmm. So what how do I do this? And so I've always been the person that I'm, I'm looking at something and it just looks insurmountable. And I was like, you know, if, if I take my time, if I don't get frustrated and I figure, I know there's a way, I just have to figure out what it is, then that's the STEM side. And then, you know, the STEM side is also, it's like, if I can take mathematical modeling and, and use that as kind of the lessons within social constructs, mm -hmm. then I can see how nature has informed these, um, these artificial systems. And I take those lessons and, 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 okay, so how we solve this, we'll solve it like, like, um, like bacteria solves it, you mm -hmm. know, or virus solves it, or, you know, something that's, you know, you know, so I, to me, it's just, that's kind of how I think. And so it just really brings out, you know, both kind of that pragmatic analytical side, but the also, I need some bubble gum, a paper clip and some tape. I think we can do this. Right? <laughs> Pretty sure we can. Maybe some chewing gum, right? I, I got this. I have a plan. 
Nice, that is so cool. That is so cool. Um, and then along with that, you also worked in uh, places <laughs> like politics and education. Um, and so curious, both with those, with politics and education, um, why have those been important to you? And specifically thinking of the focus on equity um, and some of the spaces in that aspect. Yeah, so in, in politics, I got to the, I, I finally came to the realization that the only way you make systemic change, now you can, you can like, oh my goodness, there's a win or we got this changed. But literally power is being in the room at the table in charge of the agenda. That's mm -hmm. power. And so that's politics, you know, understanding where funding is going, rules, regula you know, regulations, um, laws, protocols, and so on. That is something you hold people accountable to because it's not negotiable that you follow the law. I mean, or if you do, there's a consequence. So <clears throat> when I started thinking about what sustains high performance and what sustains fairness and equity. It's not just protest because I can close the door and I don't have to listen to your mouth, you know, or I can explain it away or I can disrupt it. Um, and protest tends to come from emotion versus strategic. I mean, there are strategic protests, but many times people that are protesting, it's out of an incredible frustration and it's just kind of raw emotion. And so for me, it's like, you know, how do, how do I sustain some of the, the, the fairness and the equity and, and keep um, opportunities for accessibility and so on? You know, I, I've, it has to be in politics. And um, so at the time I was like, okay, I think, I think I'm gonna go this route. I mean, people have said, you know, you gotta go into politics. I'm like, eh, I'll pass, <laughs> hard stuff. Yeah, no. So then I was in there and I was like, okay, all right, I can change this law if I have, if I can count my votes or I can bring awareness or funding and make sure voices are represented in decisions and so on. And then I kind of got to the point where I was like, you know, they're like, okay, Judy, you need to be thinking about, you know, Senate and Congress and things like that. And then I was like, okay, I've always had an opportunity to really stop it reflect and um, and really look at, you know, are you making meaningful change? Let's focus on the dash between your, you know, your life and your and your your death. And so then I was like, you know, this is great, you know, and I'll probably do some really good things. And people probably feel really good about me. And it's like, you know, oh my goodness, you did this. This is great, whatever. And it's like, it's not about me. And I was like, do you know the old parable where they're walking down the beach, the tide goes out, there's starfish. And then there's two people walking, one person keeps throwing them in, the other one's like, you know, I, I, you know, you can't save all of them. It's like, I can't save all of them, but I can save those. So I coach starfish throwers. And I figured, you know what? The only way I can make sustainable change, scope, um, depth, breadth, across so many, science, you know, medicine, education, social constructs, infrastructure, and so on is, I, I have to, I have to coach heroes. How do I, how do I fully affirm and embrace and, 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 
and ensure they're in full capacity to go out and make these incredible, meaningful changes. It's an education. And so it's like, you know, I can do it, but that's a little selfish for me. If I really want to make a meaningful difference, it's like, I've got to create an army. And so it, I, I went back to education. And so I took my coaching and went back to education. And, and so now I, I coach starfish stores. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. And um, building off that, and just a couple of the questions uh, before we close out. Um, like, like I noted, so myself, so I grew up in like the 90s and the 2000s. And, you know, in general, kind of like I was knowing before, there's been so much progress over previous decades. Um, but it still seems like we take three steps forward and then, you know, five steps back or something like that. Um, and, you know, I'm curious on some of with the, some of the things that we were talking about and, you know, getting back into education and getting back into these initiatives. Um, do you see some of the, you know, some of the fruits of your labor actually bearing out, um, you know, with others as they, you know, kind of carry on and learn from you? Oh, my. I have the most profound mentees that are making incredible differences in corporate America and uh, medicine and education and business and law and policy, law enforcement um, and science and uh, sport. And the I think the, the most beautiful thing that I hear is I hear their worlds are large and, and they're talking the talk of, you know, never wasting an opportunity. You know, this thing happened and I thought about you, so I did it, you know, or I didn't want to do it, but you know what, I, I could hear you in my head. And so I didn't want to regret. So I did it and I'm so glad and you know, or I, I course corrected because I didn't, I realized I wasn't making the impact that I thought I should. So now I've moved here and I had a beautiful career had I continued. And so I hear them pausing and making meaningful changes. And then I hear them say, and let me tell you about all the, the students and young people I'm mentoring or the other people in my organization that I'm mentoring, the policies and the rules, and we've got corporate social responsibility to make sure that we're making a difference in the communities that we serve, not just you know, providing you know, some kind of a, um, a public service or a public good. And so all the things that I just keep, and I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, these starfish sores are just, making the biggest that ripple so I always think it's like you know right now I mean like literally if I were to get off this you know this conversation and die I would have the biggest smile on my face because I know the world is being well served by these incredible change agents that are also creating change agents you know understand the responsibility of, of their blessings. And, um, and so for me, it's like, it, it doesn't really matter how dark it does. It doesn't really matter the things that I hear on, on the news and the tragedies and so on. It's like, you know, I still have incredible hope and, and, and resilience and, and knowing that this, you know, we, you know, 
while it's right now, because it's our truth, we think like, oh, this is insurmountable. It's like, how about I walk you back a couple of generations? I'll show you insurmountable. So your threshold may be a little bit, you know, a little, your disposition, you may clutch your pearls early, but we stand on the shoulder of our ancestors and, and, and mine are noisy. I hear them every day. And so as, you know, as I hear them cheering me on and give me affirmation and, and, and you know, reprimanding me, I know that it is, you know, I'm their dream. And so at my full life is to realize, you know, you know, a, a lot of my family, like your family is strange fruit. And so as I think of those that, you know, tried maybe even said the same things that came out of my mouth during a time period where it wasn't tolerated is, you know, then let me say it and then let me do it. And then when I can't do it anymore, it's like, oh, look at all these people that can do it. And so for me, it's just, it, it's, you know, I think it's beautiful. And, and it, to me, it's, it's, I, did, I feel the energy and I feel the light and it's like, it just, you know, yeah, do I have down days? But, you know, it's, it's, it's more of, of, okay, so now what? So then what, Judy? So, you know, you look at stuff and you're like, oh my God, that like really went fully opposite than the way I thought. I mean, really opposite. And, you know, most people look at where I am right now and it's like, you know, I, you know, I have a lot of, you know, through our families between incarceration and drugs and alcohol and, and death and, and dysfunction and illiteracy and so on. It's like, my family is no different than anyone else's family. I have a job to do. Yeah. Yeah. So many, so many important things you, you said. And I, I love that, like the idea of you're leaving behind all this knowledge and all this, um, you know, all this wisdom for others to continue on. And then eventually they'll be passing that on. And Absolutely. eventually it just makes it, you know, hopefully we live in a better and better place year after year. So absolutely um just last um last question and i just have a kind of couple of different questions but um kind of like we were noting before but the intersection kind of of sports and politics and you know <laughs> right there's there's so many people saying even back i i think i've watched like interviews of uh tommy smith where they're trying to say you know keep it, keep politics out of sports and blah, blah, blah. Um, and of course that's risen back up in the past, you know, two years or so, but just what are your thoughts about it? And even more so, do you have like um, advice for black athletes as they're navigating through, you know, track and field or other sports um, and how they should, you know, be able to express themselves um, despite everything that does has been occurring? Yeah. So I work with the U S Olympic and Paralympic committee on their, um, their, um, it was like sport for social change and, and mm -hmm. protest. And, um, you know, I have a very different perspective, of course, coming out of the sixties, you know, it's, there's a difference between having a hose and a dog sent on you versus, you know, <laughs> you know, being arrested, <laughs> at least you lived. Mm. So, um, it, so when I, when I look at protests and, and I, I, you know, working with the athletes and what I say now is, is, you know, your full protest is 
you standing on your core values Mm. and ensuring that you're looking for avenues to ensure that they're either codified or they are part of an institution or that they are where things are inequitable and so on. And so when you look at things in a way of protest, you have to be very careful because it's, it's weaponized and it's not taking anything away from protest. It's about anything you do, you need to do strategically. Like you wouldn't go out and compete and not know the race and not understand strategy. Mm -hmm. Protest is absolutely no different. Having your voice for social change is no different. Who's your audience? So you have to understand it's like when you're at a uh, international competition, your audience is the world. You don't know that whole audience and you have to know that it's the bell curve from, you know, those that may even be, um, you know, fully racist, or it could be something that is like really, um, you know, where you have no voice Mm. and um, all the way to people that are fully leaning into what you're saying. So you have to understand it's like the broader the audience, the bigger the bell curve. Remember a bell curve in the middle at 90 degrees is, is 50, 50, 50% will be affirming you. 50% will be vilifying you. You got to be able to handle that. And so the larger your audience, it's, it's more important that it's, what are you saying? Why are you saying it? And what do you want to happen? Because most of the time your celebrity and, 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 the level and prestige of where you say it typically will put a mic in your mouth and saying, what is it that you want? Because you have an audience. And I find many times no one's thought that far. (laughs) And so you get the audience. I just want it to be fair. No, that's not actionable. And you give people permission to dismiss you and discount you. Know what you want, what it looks like, how to measure it and who owns it. There's a thoughtfulness in that. And you just can't say, I'm going to kneel because I think the nation's unfair. What does that mean? So, you know, one of the things that when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling, he was saying, it is the incidence of police brutality. You knew exactly why he was kneeling. Mm -hmm. And it was the incidence of of unarmed of uh, uh, people of color who whose lives were taken, forget we won't even go to the fact that you're being incarcerated, you know, and so on, or, or you know, driving while black and being stopped and things like that. So, no, clearly be able to articulate what what is your platform, what do you want to happen, and and how do you measure that? Because you can't you can't just say world peace. What does that mean? So I, I think the, the thing that we have to do is like when we're, we're working with, particularly with, with um, elite athletes, it's like, you know, you have an incredible platform, which means you have an incredible responsibility to be articulate and to know exactly what you are asking for, who can do it, what it looks like and how you measure it and not, vague things because the vague the more vague the better it is for me not to comply because you did not 
you did not hold me accountable to a tangible outcome. Nice. Yeah. I, I love, I love all of that. That is very powerful. And we see so many times where, you know, others want to take advantage of those little holes, those opportunities that we, you know, we don't, we don't clearly express ourselves that we don't clearly like say, okay, this is exactly what we're doing something mm -hmm. for people take advantage of those um, opportunities there. So. And don't just do it on, on the platform. It's like, you know, like there were individuals that wanted to do it. Like, you know, if I win a gold medal, I'm going to do it on, you know, I'm going to do it on the medal stand. Um, you're on the medal stand one day. What were you doing the other 364 days of the year? Are you a part of a group? Do you, are you fundraising? Are you bringing awareness? Are you educating yourself? Are you collaborating with others? Are you, so you, that, that's disingenuous. And so it, it doesn't give you the credibility that this is really a core value. Um, and that's how people, you know, and people will say, it's like, you know, this person has been working with these groups and this has been a long time agenda of, of fairness and equity, food insecurities, whatever it is. And be, because people, you represent whatever that, that, that um, whatever that platform you're on. Um, but if you're just like, I, I think I'm going to do it then, you're like, okay, I think you aren't, right? <laughs> How can, let's talk that through. Let's talk that through. And then let's role play it. And then know as soon as you say that, from that point forward, that has to be where your time and attention is found. Yeah, I love it. I definitely love it. So let me um i'm gonna transition you, like bless us with so many so many gems uh today which i really appreciate um so two, two questions for you kind of different um so first question if you can compete at an upcoming olympics and you're completely healthy you're in your prime you know no injuries or anything like that but you cannot compete in the 400 meter hurdles what event would you do and why I probably would compete. I probably would compete in the 100 meter hurdles. What I love about hurdles is it's so strategic. So mm -hmm. I love the, the the strategic piece of coordination and quickness and and navigating barriers because I just feel like it's such a metaphor for life. Um, and if it weren't that, it probably would be the heptathlon, Ooh. where it was a it was a full mastery of of all the events. Mm. That, that's I love I love like your reasoning. It's like so powerful. That's um, it's so it's so graceful. I feel heptathlon seems so you know tough with all the events, but you make it seem so graceful, which is amazing. <laughs> Um, and then last question, um, of course, you spoke about traveling so much. Could you pick one favorite place that you've traveled to in your entire life? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's say, for, yeah, for different places, like, could be a couple. So one is like, I can experience history first person. So like when I like, I remember the first time that I was um, 
traveling and I saw ruins mm -hmm. from thousands of years ago, thousands of years. And then I would think of, you know, first of all, I knew it was slaves that, you know, that were able to, you know, construct it. But then what was the engineering? Yeah. How many died trying to, you know, lift these huge blocks of granite or sandstone or, or whatever. Um, so I've always loved to see historical ruins. Like I think probably if I had another life, I'd be an archeologist and just, you know, to uncover the one thing that, now here's a beauty now, you probably don't hear this. One of the very beautiful things that, is, that has come out of climate change and, and the droughts is these huge bodies of water. These water tables are so low that they're finding these communities because the water tables have risen. And so with this drought, you know, these huge bodies of water are just, you know, just, you know, tens and tens, you know, they're, they're like 20, 30, 40 feet low, or they've dried out. And then in the bed is like this incredible full history. And so for me, it's every time you turn around, you hear about this new civilization because this, this lake bed has, has dried out or this, you know, because of climate change, whatever, this isn't such a hostile area. And so people are actually exploring it right now and they're finding these incredible civilizations are preserved um, bodies and so on. So for me, I'd love to be around that. So like being in the third world countries, I really, you know, it's, it's that native land, mm. first nation, and, and, and just really seeing um, nature at its finest, because I, I really appreciate nature. And the other is, you know, is, is, you know, not having resources make you extremely creative. And I think, you know, there's, there's an atrophy that comes from technology and, and privilege. And so when you go to third world countries, you see this incredible um, um, creativity of, of, of ways of, you know, so, you know, going to the, any of the islands, you know, being in South America, um, being, um, you know, going down in, in South Europe, um, but also the rural parts, you know, being up in, you know, being in rural France, you know, being up in Finland and Sweden and, and Norway and, and, and places where life is so simple. You're, you're literally still a sheep herder and, you know, you, you, you eat the sheep, you milk, that's your butter and, and, and food tastes different. Because literally they milked the, you know, they milked the sheep and they made the cheese that you're eating for dinner, you know, and, and, and farm to table. And so I find that, um, well, there's some things that I really appreciate technology and progressiveness. What I think is like, we've lost the, the creativity, the simplicity, how things taste. So I think when people go to, you know, they travel and like, oh, the food was wonderful. It's because the ingredients are fresh. They're not processed. They're not overproduced. They're not, they're fresh. And so going out and farm, whatever farm country is you taste and you're like, why does this chicken taste different? Why does this fish taste different? You know, these vegetables are just 
robust in color and flavor and texture. So I think for me, I just love culture. And culture to me right now has come out really in, in food and music um, and, and sometime religion, some, you know, religion can be, you know, I don't know, there's been a, whatever, but it's, I just love that sense of belongingness and, and the richness and robustness of, of community. So that culture to me, um, and where I see culture is, I just thrive and love it, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. And I, I love you. You kind of interweave almost everything there from like the technology and the STEM and the science to the community, the culture, the chat, like everything was there. Um, and throughout this whole conversation, I, you know, kind of centered on, you know, equity and justice and, you know, progression and um, leadership and all the all these different topics. So I, I love that. That kind of sums it up very well. So <laughs> Judy Brown Clark, I am beyond appreciative to have had the opportunity to speak with you. And again, you dropped so many gems and so many things that people can learn from. So thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure. And I appreciate you reaching out and extending this invitation because I've, I've just really um, enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.